Hello and welcome to Altamara. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do every other week. In January, one of the world's important, longest-lasting, sturdiest, and most dependable financial benchmarks will cease to exist forever. LIBOR, the London Interbank Overnight Rate, a mouthful, certainly, that essentially set world interest rates will disappear on December 31st. It's one of the many certainties of global economics that are no longer so certain. So today we'll try to navigate the turbulent and downright weird world economy with the help of James Polity, Financial Times DC Bureau Chief, and we'll discuss with him threats and uncertainties, recovery opportunities and difficulties in economic forecasting under constant surprising events. There's also a major financial event happening as we kick off 2022, but we'll have more on that in a bit. Muni, we, we have seen so much in strange economics in the past two years because of COVID and also beyond COVID, we have supply chain interruptions and inflation on all prices and particularly exploding real estate prices in many parts of the world. The great resignation in the United States, a weird phenomenon in which lots of people have decided they want to leave their jobs. A return in the power of labor and the use of strikes, which we haven't seen in a long time. Scarcity in everyday products, fluctuating currency values, and a roller coaster markets every time there's a vaccine or a new virus that is discovered. And on top of all of that, Muni, as you mentioned in January, the decision by regulators to move away from LIBOR, the interest rate index for the banking system, it's just all created the sense of new uncertainties that in the case of LIBOR is going to create a sense of how do we negotiate loan documents and how do we decide what the replacement instrument is going to be after LIBOR has been around for 35 years. So that's absolutely the worst timing for the financial world with everything else happening. But let's get a little bit into the geopolitics that affects the world economy. And we'll start with the elephant in the room where we've talked about so much, the U.S.-China effect. These two countries combined make 40% of global GDP and, of course, determine the livelihood of the rest of the world. And China, with its supremacy as both consumer of commodities and importer, is experiencing a slowdown that could absolutely resonate in every corner of the world. Electricity shortages and a real estate crisis have been dampening China's 20-year growth spurt. And meanwhile, the U.S. seems ready to embrace tighter monetary policy and is trying to deal with high inflation and the rising cost of living, despite low unemployment and economic growth. I think you're right to sort of put the China-U.S. effect first. But it's not only China and the U.S. I mean, you take a look at Europe, it's plagued with incredibly high energy bills and gas lines and rising inflation shortages are everywhere from Brussels to Rome and tourism, which jumped back decently over the summer, is now set to plunge again with the news of the new COVID strain. And similarly, Asia is reeling from lockdowns and slowdowns. Emerging markets, depending on China, are going to be affected by China's economic slowdown. And the recoveries are going to be probably insufficient to offset the sharp drop of what we've seen in world economic activity in 2020. And, you know, if you look at political instability in Latin America and shortages in Africa, that's also going to affect further growth. So it's a roller coaster that we're going to see in 2022 in economics that's going to go well beyond um, the beginning of the year and last for a while. Let's ask Taya to talk a little bit more about how millennials are experiencing 
one of the fundamental economic issues of today, which is the inflationary aspect for the very first time in their lives. How are they reacting? I'm Taya Vanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So an interesting phenomenon I want to talk about is how inflation is perceived, and more specifically, how it's perceived by youth. So I'm merely admiring the problem here, and I'm quoting our previous Altamar guest, Professor McLaughlin, along with a younger generation, the Gen Zers and the millennials, we're experiencing inflation for the very first time since we've been old enough to notice. And we millennials have spent much of our lives enduring economic disaster, thank you boomers, from the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s to the Great Recession in 2008, and now the COVID-19 economy, which of course we're also talking about today with James Politi. So the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, which is a main measure of inflation, has been rising for months, and it's touching its highest level since 1991, when those boomers, born between 1946 and 1964, were roughly the same age as millennials are now. The closest that inflation has come to that mark since then was in 2008, when soaring oil prices briefly pushed up the overall index. And it's showing. Millennials have different economic habits. And for one, millennials tend to be renters, which you've heard about. And that leaves them much more exposed to rising rents than older generations, which are much more likely to be homeowners. Millennials also often buy used cars, meaning that they have borne the brunt of used vehicle prices that are up 26% over the past year. And baby boomers are much more likely to buy new cars, which have gone up in price, but not as much. So while people of all ages are being affected by higher food prices, young adults also tend to dedicate more of their money to restaurant meals. So we're really at the forefront of all this trouble here. An entire generation has never really experienced inflation before, and it's quite jarring. So are you a millennial or are you the parents of one? I think this is a great dinner table conversation. Let me know what you find out from your millennial friends by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. Yeah, that's interesting. We forget that the world has not faced massive inflation in a generation. But let's take a look at the bright side, if any improvements on vaccine treatments and understanding of COVID, a faster than expected recovery, new opportunities in technology, a broader global consensus on climate change, glimmers of hope. So we need for some type of clarity to all this. Let's bring in our guest. James Politi is the Washington bureau chief of the Financial Times. He was the FT's world trade editor since 2018. And before that, he spent four years at the FT's Rome bureau chief. And that's the affinity that James and I have. He joined the FT in 2002 to cover the international capital markets and was previously based in DC covering the Federal Reserve and the US Treasury Department. He's the perfect person, therefore, to help sort out the weirdness in today's economy. James, benvenuto to Altamar. Grazie mille. Um, I hope I don't add too much confusion to the picture, but <laughs> rather than clarity. But in any case, I'm here. Thank you. And, you know, Mooney and I sort of discussed some of the stressors in the global economy. Is there a single big threat to the global economy today? Well, I mean, I think that the biggest threat, and we've seen it in the last 10 days, is the virus itself. And I think that that's what caused, you know, the big resetting of the global economy, the plunge of last year, 
that's really thrown everything into chaos on top of the human toll. And I think that we thought we were coming out of it. I think policymakers thought that we were coming out of it. And now all of a sudden, each time it looks like things are improving, there's the risk of a new setback. And so the biggest threat remains the virus, potential mutations, new lockdowns, new human suffering. And I think that that's really the biggest threat at the moment. Another threat that seems to be in the newspapers a lot with a lot of political ramifications as well as inflation, certainly here in America, but also in Europe and other places in the world. And a few months ago, economists were talking about inflation as basically a short-term phenomenon. I think the economic word was transitory inflation. What's your take on this? Well, I mean, Chair Powell yesterday said he thought the terms transitory should be retired at this point, because everyone looked at it in a different way. Clearly, the notion that the spike in inflation that we saw in the spring would quickly vanish was sort of misplaced. I think that inflation has proven to be higher than I think most forecasters thought it would be. But I think there's still quite a lot of uncertainty about you know, what happens next year, what happens the year after, whether the factors that held down inflation for 25 years are still present and will still be present, you know, once the pandemic sort of comes to a close, however that scenario will unfold, or whether we're entering sort of a new paradigm of higher prices. And I think that debate is unsettled. I think the prevailing view at the Fed and the Treasury here in the U.S. is still that ultimately inflation will get back down to 2% and that there hasn't been a big paradigm shift. But I think that everyone's starting to get a little anxious that actually, well, there's a decent chance that maybe things have changed. And not be so transitory. President Biden has a robust agenda and a lot of expectations have been built around the build back better policy that he's tried to implement. But he has multiple challenges. He is keeping the team at the Fed. He's trying to work with Congress on an economic package that's enough to both handle inflation and keep unemployment low. Will this be enough for him to actually build back better? Well, I mean, I think that President Biden is in a very tough spot. When they came into power in January, they thought that they really needed to attack sort of the slowdown, the winter surge, which was connected to the slowdown, with hefty fiscal stimulus. And it was a real demand-driven response. And now the tables have turned. They are trying to get through these big structural changes to the economy, and they're trying to rationalize them as potentially deflationary, i.e. they think that they will lower costs for American families to have better childcare and all these provisions in the Build Back Better plan. But actually, that's not the main mission of some of these structural changes to the economy, but they're trying to frame them as helping to ease inflationary pressures when actually I think probably they'll be neutral or maybe might add to inflation in the first couple of years. And that's a very difficult position to be in because the Biden administration wants to be seen as addressing 
sort of the prevailing concerns of the American people at the moment. And in some ways, the prevailing concern is high prices. But their big agenda, their big spending agenda, doesn't quite fit that category. And I think that's why they're in a tough spot politically. So younger generations are experiencing inflation for the very first time. And we millennials and Gen Zers are very exposed to these rising prices. For example, by mostly being renters rather than homeowners and generally buying used cars versus new cars. And, and those prices have gone up a lot. So I have a very selfish question for my generation, James. What are some of the ways that we can shield ourselves from this rising inflation? Well, I mean, it's hard to answer that question because there are no sort of magic bullets. I mean, one way to shield yourselves from higher inflation is by demanding higher wages. Ultimately, that's the only way that you can ensure that you can keep up. And there are, I mean, in my reporting, like including talking to younger people, that's the way that you can keep up essentially with higher inflation. And I think there is a certain amount of bargaining power that workers have at this point in the recovery because companies are desperate to keep up with, you know, soaring demand. And so I think it's probably important to kind of stick with it and try to get, you know, higher wages if you can and have the knowledge that that's really the only way that you can make ends meet and the value of your work is worth fighting for. I mean, that's kind of my, my main recommendation because otherwise it's quite difficult to pinpoint what to do, especially because the inflation increases are now more and more sort of broad-based. So it's hard to say, okay, well, you should be really focusing on this category of goods rather than this other category of goods. James, just to follow up on that, is that the reason that you see a lot you know, in America, they talk about the great resignation or the newfound power of labor in the strikes we are seeing in many parts of the country. Is that connected to what you just mentioned about the new bargaining power of workers? I think it is. I think there are a lot of people, workers who lost their jobs in the initial wave of the virus last year and have a little bit more financial cushion thanks to all the fiscal stimulus measures that were put in place. Um, household balance sheets are in a better place. And so there is a chance to rethink your relationship with work and to not immediately you know, latch on to, oh, I've got to get this job because otherwise I can't you know, pay my bills. I, you know, I've got to deal with this boss that I don't like because that's the only way that I can pay my bills. Or there are older workers who have chosen to retire early rather than actually keep working under the conditions that they were working in. And so I think that that's partly why companies are being forced to increase wages. And I think it does reflect the greater bargaining power of workers. Now, the question is, how long is that going to last? our household balance sheet's going to be at some point depleted. And the window to kind of have that discretion for workers, you know, is that going to be open forever? Or is that going to close at some point? But I think it does very much feed into that. And meanwhile, across the world, China is slowing down. This is a reality. And the rest of the world is obviously going to feel the impact of this giant consumer and the largest producer of commodities. 
What would be the economic implications and the political implications of a weaker China for the rest of the world? Well, it would certainly be a new hit to the global recovery if China were to be weaker. And I think that that would have ramifications kind of across the board. And if the slowdown were to be serious enough, it could even potentially plunge the global economy, you know, into a new recession or something of the like. So I think it's definitely a concern. And of course, the real estate troubles over there have only added to those worries. However, I mean, from a sort of strategic point of view, given the level of hawkishness on China in the United States and Washington at the moment, I don't know that a slowdown in the Chinese economy would be necessarily frowned upon, you know, in the US. I think actually, you know, as long as the spillovers weren't particularly strong over here, I think there are many in the US who would be rooting for that kind of economic trouble over in China. James, another bastion of quote unquote, the old economy is disappearing. LIBOR, which is London-based interest rate that banks charge to each other, is going to be no longer as of the end of this year. So why is that important? And is anything going to replace it or is it not necessary anymore? And what's the ramifications of that? Well, I think that what's sort of interesting about LIBOR is that, of course, it was kind of ended because of, you know, a rate rigging scandal um, that really tarnished its reputation and forced regulators around the world to essentially wind it down as it's the main benchmark for debt and around the world and for the capital markets around the world. And it was forced to wind down because of a rate rigging scandal that then roped in Barclays and other banks. And, and so now there was this kind of massive effort to craft a new, essentially overnight financing rate. And global regulators have, you know, sort of come up with one. And now it's starting to get rolled out. And I think it's a very interesting case of, okay, can financial regulators set sort of a new a new standard for you know Wall Street and and financial markets around the world that is sort of more fair, more equitable, uh, less prone to manipulation, and that's kind of an experiment that's unfolding as we speak. We've talked a bit on this show before about supply chain shortages, and which is another concern that we've talked about with regard to the threats to the global economy. We've also talked about emerging markets' interest in reshoring or nearshoring. What is your take on kind of this enthusiasm for reorganizing supply chains around the world? Is it something that you believe can be long-term or is it an opportunistic or an illusion? I mean, it's very interesting because at the start of the pandemic and even since then, there's been this massive kind of effort to say, you know, we really need our supply chains to be tighter, closer. We need to not depend on imports from other countries if we are going to, you know, secure PPE, pharmaceutical ingredients, semiconductors, and sort of the reshoring kind of mantra which is connected to a renewed idea of an industrial policy, even here in the United States, has definitely picked up and it's sort of continuing. And we see it, you know, even in legislative action and all the rest. But then on the other side, 
what you're seeing, you know, there's been this massive surge in consumer demand for goods this year and supply chain bottlenecks forming and ships in the port of LA can't get into the port and containers can't get offloaded, which supports, you know, inflationary pressures. And then the answer there is not so much about reshoring. I mean, it's partly about reshoring, but then it's also, well, you know, what can we do to ease uh, supply chains around the world? And that requires a global response in terms of inflationary pressures. Now there's a question of, well, you know, should the U.S. really be uh, removing some of the Trump-era tariffs on China because that's an additional cost and it's an additional burden on importers? And so there are a lot of kind of different countercurrents that are happening. I don't think the U.S. and other countries have really actually made up their minds about whether they want purely domestic supply chains or they actually maybe just want to try to find ways to smooth the the global supply chains. It's a pretty interesting debate that's happening. So real quick, all of these stressors to the global economy, do you think they'll change kind of this new trend of protectionism that Trump definitely touted and Biden has basically continued? Is, is the U.S. set to be open to trade and investment a little more now? I think it's still to be determined. I mean, The Biden administration has been very cautious on trade policy. I mean, they've, they haven't really touched the China tariffs yet, though they are under some pressure to, to ease those tariffs given the current environment. They've moved to wrap up some of the trade tensions with kind of key allies. So the Airbus and Boeing tariffs, that dispute with the EU in particular has been sort of put on ice. And the very controversial steel and aluminum tariffs motivated by kind of slightly spurious national security reasons. And now there's a deal on that with the EU, though not with the UK, which is what we reported today. And so they're resolving some of the trade disputes with allies. They're still maintaining a sort of protectionist attitude towards China, which in a way could go either way. I think that there's some budding discussions about areas in which the U.S. could start to think about some new trade liberalization efforts, particularly on the digital side, particularly in Asia and the Pacific region as a counterweight to China. But of course, you know, then you get back to like all the bad memories of the whole TPP saga. So that could be fairly hard to sell but it would have its sort of geopolitical motivations. The top priority for the Biden administration at the moment, and they always said this, is to get their domestic agenda through. So I think if they get Build Back Better through, you know, then only after that will a discussion begin about possible trade liberalization rather than just kind of wrapping up the disputes of the past. Let me ask you a last question, James, about emerging markets. I mean, this last Omicron variant has again brought forth that we live in a very globalized world and interconnected world. And how do you see the emerging markets in the next year or so? And, you know, there's a lot of political upheaval, you know, areas that I've been historically interested in Latin America. It's, it's a difficult political moment. Do you see emerging markets coming out of the problems that they've been having? And of course, 
there's many different emerging markets, but how do you see generally the view on the developing world? So I think for emerging markets, I mean, they're clearly behind in the fight against the virus. And so I think it'll be really important for the US and Europe and others to really ramp up aid as much as possible. The discussions about, you know, the patent waivers at the WTO haven't really moved on. I think there's been too much hesitancy in terms of offering aid to countries, not just so that they have the supply of vaccines that are necessary, but also that they're able to actually get them into people's arms so that some of the vaccination rates will go up because that's a very clear and kind of primary source of instability. But kind of setting that then aside, although it is the main factor, the other thing that I think they're looking out for is, you know, what happens when rates go up? So what happens if now that we're seeing tightening, you know, on the horizon in terms of monetary policy in the U.S., interest rates going up, you know, how does that affect emerging markets? And does this create, you know, more financial turmoil in emerging markets? That was always the fear. And I think that that remains probably a source of concern. Of course, if it's paired with, you know, an improving economy, improving economies, and if central banks in emerging markets take sort of similar approaches, and it's all fairly coordinated, I think there might be a way to avoid turmoil. But I don't think that can be taken for granted. And so, you know, hopefully we don't get those kinds of crises um, unfolding as the Fed begins to, you know, wrap up its stimulus and increase interest rates, possibly at a fairly fast clip to try to, you know, tame inflation here in the United States. James Politi from the Financial Times, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great to be here. So, Peter, after all this talk about the world economy, I have a lot of political concerns. There's at least three big stressors, the pandemic, the slowdown in China, and the rise in inflation. Uh, along with the slowdown of emerging markets, what is going to happen to the politics? There's tons of elections around the world. I see and I, I predict a retreat of democracy and, and increasing citizen unrest. We're going to make the next Altamar Muni about the predictions for 2022, but I think you're already hinting at what one of the main predictions are going to be, which is certainly this world of turmoil and unexpected politics and instability is not going to go away anytime soon. So there's no doubt about that. You know, what leaves me clear from this moment with James is how difficult it is to predict what's going to happen in the economy. Will inflation subside? Will the Fed raise interest rates? Will the pandemic go away? Will emerging markets come back? I mean, all of these questions, I mean, James took us on a great tour, but all of these questions remain so ambivalent because it's just way too early to answer them. We have to go now, but you can listen to all tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.